Welcome to What If You Just Leave It, a podcast about rewilding. I'm Dr. Sam Rose, but I prefer just Sam. And in late 2019, I had to choose a project for my master's degree in photography. At the time, I was reading the book Wilding by Isabella Tree and was amazed by what they'd achieved for biodiversity at the Nepp Estate in West Sussex. Now, having worked in nature conservation for most of my career and being a bit of a tree hugger anyway, the choice of projects suddenly became clear and easy, rewilding. So these podcasts relate my journey through the project, the many fantastic conversations I've had, and fascinating places I've visited. You can see the accompanying photos at my website, whatifyoujustleaveit.info, and I'm aiming to create an exhibition and book in due course to raise awareness of rewilding and its importance. I hope you find this interesting and enjoyable. It's my first series of podcasts, so I'd love to find out what you think. Again, the web address is whatifyoujustleaveit.info. So thank you for listening, and on with the podcast. I'm delighted now to be able to bring you the first of a two-part interview with Professor Alistair Driver. Now, Ali is well known to many people for his long and illustrious career with the Environment Agency, constantly championing the cause of nature. But he's now the director of Rewilding Britain, a small but very influential charity that promotes and advocates for rewilding in the UK. Ali is a busy man, so I was delighted when he accepted my request and gave such a good chunk of his time. In fact, the interview was so long and full of great content, both for those new to rewilding and old hands alike, that I've split it into two. As it was done during the pandemic, it took place outdoors, so we are occasionally accompanied by the delights of aerial traffic. Although it was done a few months ago now, it is all still pretty much up to date, but I have put some new developments in terms of what he said onto the website. I also report on them at the end of the second interview. So this first part of the interview focuses on his journey to this role, and then a great discussion about the meaning of terms we all hear or use, such as rewilding, shifting baseline syndromes, and even trophic cascade, all of which Ali handles with great skill. So I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. Alistair, what a privilege to be talking to you today. Uh, Would you just introduce yourself for the recording, please? I'm Alistair Driver. I'm the director of Rewilding Britain. Great. And I know you're a busy man, uh, so thanks for some time, and I've got some questions for you. I do imagine you've probably been asked these before, but will you bear with me and <laughs> yeah. g- g- give us your, no your fresh take on it? But first of all, what's your backstory? What's your background? How, how are you here today in this Director of Rewilding Britain? Yeah, I'm a country naturalist brought up in the Cotswolds uh, with a dad who was a, a very keen naturalist who used to run bird trips uh, to places like Portland Bill and Bardsey Island and locally in Gloucestershire. Brought up in a 14th century cottage in the middle of nowhere. Uh, spent all my childhood roaming the woods and the and the streams and doing all those country naturalist things that it's not appropriate to do now, like collecting birds' eggs, pinning insects, uh, skinning and stuffing animals. <laughs> all, a lot of fun. All that, yeah, it was brilliant. And it was a great way to learn. And I then went to university to study ecology. And then I was very fortunate to get some temporary work straight away doing river surveys in Gloucestershire and in North Ants. Then became through a few sort of sideways moves, became the first ever conservation officer for the Thames catchment, for the Thames Water Authority. It was, a, it was, a, was an amazing yeah. break, an amazing job. Conservation officer covering the 5,000 square mile Thames catchment. Were you the first conservation officer for a river authority at all? Full-time. I was the first full-time conservation officer for any river authority. Wow. There were three other people doing it some of their time, great people who I learnt a lot from and we we evolved together because we were all appointed after the 1981 Wildlife and Countryside Act which required water authorities to further conservation 
when carrying out their functions, and that meant you got to have, you better have somebody who knows what the, knows Absolutely. a bit about the subject. So we were we were the first, and uh, we could meet in a broom cupboard in those days. <laughs> By the time I uh, left the public service, thirty four years later, there were hundreds of people doing that job, of course, across the country, quite rightly. And it was an amazing 34 years. I, for the last 15, I was national head of conservation for the Environment Agency, which was a real privilege. And I traveled the, the length and breadth of the country trying to make things happen, trying to build resources for, for conservation and influencing policy and working on big projects. And particularly towards the end, this is the, this is the crucial link to rewilding, mm. I was focusing a lot on working with natural processes mm. and, and natural flood management mm and trying to encourage bigger and better projects. Did, did you find it a positive environment, or did you find it that you, you were banging your head against the walls so much of the time? <laughs> well, I, it, it's both. It's yeah. both. So, an amazingly positive environment because you are, you are promoting and doing what I consider to be good things, really good things. Some of the projects I dealt with, London Wetland Centre, Steert Managed Realignment, Medmary Managed Realignment, Otmore, RSP, what is it now, RSPB mm. Reserve. All these big wetland projects were hugely exciting, hugely positive, and, and actually very ambitious. Mm. The challenge was, of course, as you've hinted, the bureaucracy, <laughs> you know, to persuade the powers that be that you should be doing something that is pushing the envelope in terms of rules and, and regulations and going to cost quite a lot of money even though, of course, the, the benefits to society massively outweighed the costs. Absolutely. Nevertheless, the challenge of that was huge. And so projects in those days, like some of those projects I've mentioned, would take uh, seven to ten years from conception to completion. I think and one had to be prepared to play the long game. Yeah. The Barnes Wetland Centre was a good example. There's about yeah. ten years, wasn't it? Yeah. Start to yeah. I actually, you know, I actually first mentioned that in a meeting as an option, a nature reserve, long before not long before, a couple of years before Peter Scott then came up with the idea. But I was so junior and timid that I didn't really push it, you know, and, and I Always was kind of dismissed. <laughs> yeah, but I learned, I learned to be less timid, as many of my colleagues will, will confirm. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Excellent. And look at that place now. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, absolute privilege to have been involved with that. And I, I've actually been a trustee for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust for the last seven years. And... Um, it's been, uh, that is another wonderful organisation doing great things. Okay. Again, before we, we move on to rewilding, where are we now? Where are we sitting? Yeah, so, we, so we, <laughs> you're, you've come to my lovely, well, not my village, but where I live, <laughs> Sonning on Thames in Berkshire. And we are in Alice Pond Local Nature Reserve, which is a nature reserve what I made. Yeah. Uh, hence the name. Yeah, hence the name. <laughs> the, the village started calling it that before it had a name, okay. and so it became the name. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, we created this uh, tiny one hectare nature reserve, which is a mixture of wildflower grassland, hedgerows and ponds, two large ponds. Um, we created it, well, the first stage was over 20 years ago and the second stage about 10 years ago. And it is now something I'm really proud of. It's only tiny. It's the exact opposite end of the spectrum to rewilding yes. but you know I'm a I'm a traditional nature conservationist yeah. you know I did four you know nearly 40 well it is over 40 years now species focused conservation species and habitat habitats yeah, habitat, habitats yeah. particularly but small scale and managed and yeah. you know but we need everything we need everything on that spectrum and uh, I'm not not ashamed to be heavily involved in in, in in looking after this it's a it's a great privilege
And what was the baseline at the start? Was, so was, the baseline you know, was fairly rough grass and yeah. with little floristic value and some very shabby hedges which were overrun with bramble and really not providing the dense thickety kind of habitat and not and without a great variety of plant species shrub species and no ponds okay and and, and remarkably when we created this first pond the one that's the original alleys pond within three years great crested newts <laughs> moved in we didn't even know we had them in the village and they were unrecorded here and, and and now i've done several other ponds in private gardens as well and we have a population of over a thousand uh, met a population in eight different breeding ponds Fantastic. Okay, so let's move on. Rewilding. I'm getting straight to this with you. I normally beat around the subject for a while with other people, but it's your job. Yeah. It's, your, it's, your, in, your, it's in the title. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of stuff on your website. There's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of books. I want to hear it from you, actually. Yeah. So let's start with that simple, classic question. What is rewilding according to Alistair Driver? Well, I like to use the tweetable version, so it's really short, and Good. of course there's lots more to it, which we can discuss. But the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. Okay. Okay. So let's break that down. What does that mean to the person over there walking their dog? So if I was as I do talk to members of, course, of the public yeah. about you know my mates down the pub yeah. they're always asking me what, what the bloody hell's rewilding exactly then? you know so so I, I explained it right it's, it's about working with nature rather than against it yeah. it's about allowing nature to lead the way and decide what things happen but you have to bear in mind that first of all you mustn't be giving up on the special bits of our environment you know the, the nature reserves with fantastic uh, flor- floristically rich grasslands etc rare invertebrate populations uh, we, we we mustn't be giving up on those you know ground nesting birds which are declining got to make sure we keep those things and so it's you have to you have to do some management along the way but the key thing is that if you operate at a larger scale you've got a greater opportunity to move up that rewilding spectrum and relax about your management because if you're operating at such a big scale you can expect that okay you might lead, lose a breeding curlew from this particular meadow but the chances are it's going to breed over there because the way that natural processes have developed mean that that habitat over there is more suitable for it anyway and so operating at scale is re- a really important part of this definition large the larger the scale the more likely you are to be Hand, able to be able to be hands off and relaxed about what happens. Okay, I'll come back to that in a second. I have heard you say also that people can do their own interventions in their own gardens. Yeah, what, what we, are we, we talking about there. Yeah, so th- this is a this is quite complicated and quite difficult to to explain. But but in a nutshell, everyone can contribute towards the rewilding spectrum. But ultimately, if you're going to be truly rewilding, you will have to be operating at scale and doing very little. And in your garden, you will still need to manage, unless you, unless you want it to, 
completely overgrow but the chances are if you do that it'd probably be nettles and brambles yeah. because you're in a very nutrient-rich environment limited seed sources of other native species you can't put a herbivore on really can you? and you haven't got space to have a you know a few cattle <laughs> roaming around so so you are the manager of yeah. that and so you are yes you can move a little a little way up that rewilding spectrum but that's what people have been doing for decades yes. anyway you know i've done it in my garden yeah. for 30 years i've got a wildlife bond and, I, and I've got a little boggy area and a log pile and I stack, I restack that log pile because there's no na- natural timber coming into it and I, and, I, and I clear the pond every five years. Yeah. Um, so, so that's still Timber. conservation management. Yeah. But if previously that garden was just a boring lawn, yeah. then you are moving slightly into a wilder environment by doing those things. So we don't want to dis- discourage anyone from moving in that direction, but size really matters. Direction of travel is interesting. Okay, yeah. that, that's really great. So coming back to size and scale, and, I, and I, I'm with you on this. You yeah. know, I can see that the issues of scale. I mean, the Lawson report, what was it now, 10 years ago? I can't remember. Yeah. Looked at scale, connectivity, and so on. Yeah. That started a lot of people thinking differently, which was fantastic. But the thing that occurs to me, there's, there's two words that occur to me in terms of rewilding at scale. One is uncertainty, because you're going into it not necessarily knowing what's Yep. going to happen and, and Isabella's book is, is a very good example of that yep. the other one is intervention because yep. there is intervention yep. my, my, my project is called what if you just leave it yeah but we don't just we can't just leave anything well, in well, well let, okay so we? let's talk about that okay. so, so we can just leave it but if we want to see change within our lifetimes or, or within our children's <laughs> lifetimes in yeah. some cases and we are serious about there being a biodiversity crisis and a climate emergency which there are which which we really should be serious because they they are smacking us in the face now if we are serious about those things then we need to speed things up we need to kick start this recovery and that's what i talk about talk about it being a marathon with a sprint start and that sprint start is lots of intervention where appropriate and necessary so talk about what those interventions are well interventions I cover a huge range of activities or in, indeed non-activities you yes. know perhaps intervention is not the right word for allowing natural regeneration for well, example well, that's well, a what word but, would you use well no I, I do use the word oh, okay. sorry <laughs> sorry just to clarify some people may say well allowing natural regeneration that's not an intervention well it oh, is no, it no, is I, it, it is in a way yes. because you are making a conscious decision about doing something and that doing something is excluding grazing animals or intensive grazing and and um, and not suddenly removing blackthorn scrub just because it starts to migrate out into a field via suckers. So so th- so th- so it is in a way, in my view, it is an intervention. Well, so, I mean, we, we have we have a fenced and an urban landscape anyway. Yeah. So we have already intervened. We have, Full and stop. we are and we are intervening now in a different way Absolutely. to enable this recovery. Yeah. So so allowance of natural regeneration is is of paramount importance because that is the first step in terms of allowing nature to take its course and and determining the outcomes Um, so manipulation of herbivores so if you've got as we have in many rewilding sites before they started large numbers of sheep grazing intensively bowling green short swords on hillsides ceasing that is a key intervention then you allow natural regen and and then you need to think about okay what can we get a roughly naturalistic herbivore balance in this landscape? And so deciding what breeds of what species and what numbers of those 
to to allow in once regeneration has started in order to to assimilate a roughly naturalistic grazing machine that that's a key that's another key intervention that usually comes a few years down the line the science in this is still developing yeah yeah, yeah. we don't have you know we don't have a calculator how many yep. You know, Longhorns. You need how many Tamworths? How many well, Tamworths? well Char- know, actually, we? Charlie does. Yeah. Charlie, Char- Charlie do Burrell and his uh, and uh, and his colleagues have developed a model for this, where you can literally plug in your size of area and and okay, determine. That's based what on their support. evidence. Yeah, it's based on their evidence, yeah, and and it's good. early days, yeah, yeah. but it's it's uh, better than nothing. But but also, I I, I mean, that's that's useful to landowners because they need to know yeah. roughly where to start. But we must remember the principle of rewilding is not 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 being prejudiced about what outcomes you want specifically and so it doesn't have you know it shouldn't be rigidly rigidly controlled like that but but one needs to rewild our thinking as uh, we need to rewild our thinking as well and rewilding our thinking means being flexible about changes you know just because you started with 10 cattle roaming a huge area of hillside doesn't mean you've got to stick with that you know you know be flexible with your thinking and and learn from what's happening and and do a little bit of tweaking along the way so livestock in the absence of natural uh, sorry natural herbivores like elk and bison and beaver etc you know that that is the proxy for trying to recreate those natural processes and natural interactions between vegetation and grazing it's not perfect but you know, we, this is the real world, and and if we're moving in that direct in the right direction, as far as I'm concerned, that is a good thing to do. I agree, and that's where you know this concept of uncertainty is is throughout it. You say it's not perfect. We don't know necessarily what's going to happen. Yeah. At any point, although we we are learning now what has happened in yes. places, but the soil will be different in different places. The the the, the um, hydrology will be different in different places. So yeah. I imagine that anybody any landowner going into this will have a degree of perhaps trepidation. Yeah, some of them are, some of them are understandably nervous. I would be, you know, if I was making such dramatic changes. But the good thing is that we have enough evidence to show the difference it can make to soil quality, to carbon sequestration, to to flood risk management, to water quality. We, there is enough evidence out there to tell us this is moving in the right direction to tackle biodiversity and climate change. And one of the key challenges, which we need to come on to, is how can you make that work economically so that it's financially viable as well? But just on the, on the interventions, other types of intervention include river restoration, wetland creation, pond creation. You know, ponds, it's very rare that ponds are created naturally nowadays because we've suppressed natural processes so much, particularly in floodplain environments. Even scrapes. Yeah, yeah, but but in a natural situation, these things would appear and yeah. disappear over time in a totally natural environment. So again, kick-starting that by creating wetlands, restoring wetlands and, uh, and ponds, etc., is important. Of course, restoring peat bog by blocking the previous drainage, ceasing burning, all that sort of thing. That's all. These are all fundamentally important interventions to kick-start this natural process recovery. Okay, fantastic. Can I just ask you to define a couple of these phrases that, that crop up yeah. in as, as simple terms as you can? Because uh, you know, what we're about is c- communicating rewilding yeah. to some yeah. extent. So natural processes. Yeah. yeah, I always fall back on my river background. Natural processes in a river would involve the following things. They would involve the river flowing through a totally natural course, meandering if that's appropriate for the part of the journey the river is on, 
uh, fast and tumbling down a steep hillside in that sort of situation. It would involve no barrier to that river flooding onto its floodplain. So totally natural integration with its floodplain, um, coming out of bank and reseeding back into bank totally naturally when you get rainfall events. It would involve no pollutants and man-derived substances from entering that river. So no chemicals, no unnatural levels of soil runoff, etc. It would involve naturalistic flows from the catchment into the river so that so that water is percolating through the ground in a naturalistic way maybe moving over the surface in a, in a natural way where, where appropriate if all of these processes these are all different aspects of river process and catchment process if all of those things are functioning naturally then you could say that natural processes prevail. Oh, and no barriers to fish passage. That's another important one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of our rivers have barriers, yeah. unnatural barriers to fish moving up and down the system. So, so if all of those things prevailed, then you could say natural processes are being delivered in, in that river catchment environment. Okay, um, trophic cascade. Yeah, oh, <laughs> this is tricky one. Yeah, I mean, this is a phrase I don't, I don't actually okay. use. Okay, well, that's quite good um, because it yeah. is, in my view, quite a complex phrase yeah that is is being used perhaps too much at the yeah yeah i i what i do if i may just use my description yeah, of do. why these trophic levels matter the way i like to describe this is right we have the soil mm. and the water mm. at, at the bottom if you like uh, of this trophic cascade for yeah. want of a better phrase soil and water vegetation mm. things that eat the vegetation mm. things that eat the things that eat the vegetation okay so let's start at the bottom. It is, it is entirely possible for us to restore soil and water conditions that are natural. We know what we need to do. There is plenty of science out there. We know what we need to do. You, what we, can, we could do that if we wanted to. It is entirely possible to restore, albeit over time, vegetation communities that are appropriate for those soil and water conditions. Again, our science in this respect, knowing what vegetation communities occur in what soil types and what water types is really good. We've got some really good information, especially in this country. Yeah. We, we know a hell of a lot about this subject. Okay, that's the vegetation. Then we get to the herbivores. Well, this is where it starts to get difficult because we know what herbivores we should have. <laughs> and would have had and should have particularly for climate conditions fit for the future we know what we'd like in terms of purely in terms of natural processes and we would like to have back bison and elk and beavers uh, as well as the existing range of native herbivores that we've already got what we can't have back are the things we've rendered extinct like aurochs for example and tarpan and so Unfortunately, this is where we have to start to compromise a little bit on what we would like. We substitute, don't we? Substitute, yeah. Compromise is not necessarily the right word. Yeah. We have to come up with proxies for, for those species because A, we are so reticent about reintroducing species that should be here that it's going to take decades for us to get things like bison and elk back into, a, into the wild. You'll see them in 
you'll probably see them in enclosures, you know, before long. In fact, there's a, yeah, there's one Kent, down at Bleenwoods yeah. in Kent yeah. being proposed. But that's a that's a that's an enclosure. So it'll be decades before we get to that point, probably, mm. if ever, indeed. And so we have to come up with the next best thing. And the next best thing is usually rare breed animals suitable for that type of habitat in that part of the country. And this is a range of cattle, ponies uh, and pigs uh, particularly. And then, just finally, the top level, the things that eat the things (laughs) (laughs) that that eat the vegetation, the carnivores. And of course, we're even more devoid of those. We don't have lynx, we don't have wolf, and we don't have bear. It's us, isn't it? So we are the only apex predator yeah. left, and of course, we are totally controlling everything yeah, and have absolutely. done for a long time. And so, unfortunately for us in Britain, because we are not connected to continental Europe, these things won't just walk in over time, and it won't be a case of us deciding whether we like to like them to stay or not. We, were, we are going to have to proactively decide whether we want to introduce them or not. And that is an even more difficult decision, being an island nation, a nation of gardeners. We're, we're not, you know, unfortunately, as a society, we're not <laughs> yes. ready for that no. yet. I, I do think links will happen. And start I, and in Scotland? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, given the space available and the nature of the habitat, or northern England, you know, Kielder, Kielder was always, mm, uh, you know, yeah. the kind, suitable kind of environment. But you've got to get the communication right. But I can see that. I can see links happening. I mean, there's such a sensitive, shy species. You know, they're, they're they'll be rarely, rarely seen. Roe deer is roe deer is their preferred yeah. food. They'll also take other things like foxes, for example, which, given the numbers of foxes in the environment, uh, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. So again, because we're missing those things, mm. we have to act mm. as the proxy for those things and that means we need to harvest the herbivores that we have brought in to try to replicate this natural process recovery and so we act as the carnivore and if that means we harvest them and eat their meat well i think that's a good thing that that's what the carnivore would have done and and why shouldn't we and 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 that is one way obviously of trying to deliver economic viability to some yeah. of these projects so that yeah. for me is how i describe these this trophic cascade and, and yeah. why it matters just as relating to that do you feel that there is a criticism that you're trying to restore a landscape to a point in time so that, well that, you know. yeah that criticism comes up quite quite a bit or oh, it's 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 not a serious criticism it's a challenge it's a challenge yeah and the simple answer is no we are not trying to restore back to a point in time that is a that is a an out of an outdated view of what rewilding is and it's partly because the word the re in rewilding but i don't care about that we you know rewilding is a great word to have yeah um, because it's making it wild again but it's making it wild again in a way that's fit for the future and this is really important fit for the future is the phrase i i prefer to use in terms of what we are aspiring to but remember we are not being prescriptive about this you know so fit for the future will mean loosely promoting the right recovery of the right mix of species and habitats based on what we know through restoration of natural processes and if we do that generically you know uh, holistically then it will be fit for the future there's restoration of natural processes as opposed to restoration of a past environment. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes total sense that we should not be restoring to a point in time in the past because the climate has changed. The the anthropomorphic pressures are hugely different. Who wants Um, to decide what that date is anyway? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Shifting baseline syndrome. Yep. I mean that that is that is that is the a, a really really important issue when when discussing change with individuals and communities in areas where the landscape. Is, a, is very much a cultural landscape. So there is this perception that some of our upland areas, Peak District, Lake District, etc., even the Howgills, some people really like the way that looks. And of course there are some stunningly beautiful yeah, and aesthetically pleasing parts of the Lake District and the Peak District, yeah. less so in the Howgills. But nevertheless, people think, well, that's the way it's always been, that's the way it's been for certainly for centuries and therefore that's the way it should be we like it like that it looks lovely to me some of those places you know like particularly the houses looks like sort of a bleak teletubby land and you see pictures now of places like Carifran and other areas where in 15 years they've transformed the way these bare hillsides look um, through intervention of planting particularly or natural regeneration and to me they look stunningly more beautiful and so this shifting baseline syndrome is a tricky one. It also applies, by the way, to species. Okay. We, you know, we've forgotten what abundance of species we used to have. Not just diversity, but abundance, you know, the sheer biomass. There are some amazing statistics from keepering of estates in, in Scotland and indeed in England from the 1800, early 1800s, which shows just incredible numbers of predators being controlled every year by keepers and what that tells us is the huge Mm. that must have been an amazingly huge biomass uh, almost a hundred times what we have now just to keep to keep those 50 pine martins that could be killed and still not have a significant impact on the population or those 28 otters or 47 Mm. golden eagles you know to be able to support that that weight of apex predator you need this humongous biomass of invertebrates and plants and, and small mammals and small birds, etc. And we've lost sight of that. I was just trying to explain this concept to somebody else. And the best way I thought to explain it was, do you remember how it used to snow more when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't snow much anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's the same <laughs> with wildlife. But in a lifetime. In a lifetime, yeah. 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 And actually, in our lifetime, of course, I, I'm a, one, of, one of my hobbies is moth trapping. Oh, yes. And, um, and I was doing that as a kid, yeah. although not with a light trap, but with treacling. Yeah. Yeah. But the sheer numbers of moths yeah. that we don't see now, you don't get your car windows you know, covered in, in smashed up invertebrates no. when you drive through a country lane at night. So you know, it, it, it's just incredible. You mentioned the reintroductions. You talked about beaver and you, we talked about lynx and so on. Is reintroduction of these species part of rewilding in your view? According to Derek Gao, it's not. But that was just one conversation I heard. What, yeah. What's, you know, how um, the, the way to look at reintroductions is it's one of many interventions that you might consider. Um, it's on the list. I forgot to mention yeah, it, okay. I think, when I was yeah. giving the list of interventions. Yeah. But yeah, deciding whether or not one needs to reintroduce a given species to help restore or maintain natural process recovery is an element. And, be- and beaver, obviously, is one of those species that one might consider. And indeed, several of the landowners that, are, that we are dealing with on large-scale re- rewilding are indeed 
proposing beaver reintroductions, albeit they're constrained at the moment in terms of having them in enclosures, I but I, I see that as a stepping stone. I believe at NEP they are being introduced very soon. Yes, that's right. NEP, uh, NEP have a partial enclosure where the bottom end of the, the stream area, stream valley in their land is fenced, right. but because upstream it's so dry and so little water further upstream, so they're, 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 they're not likely to go these yeah. huge distances across dry land. So, so that's a partial enclosure. Yeah, it's not a release to the wild though, specifically. Yeah. For me, if something is <coughs> reintroduced into a system whereby it can behave naturally, that's letting the natural processes happen. Yes. Even and, if you've put it in there in the first place. And, and also, and this is where some people say, oh, no, not another bloody enclosure, you know. Well, this is a stepping stone for society. Yeah. Every enclosure, beaver enclosure you get, will win over a few more hearts and minds. Yeah. And people will be able to witness for themselves in their part of the country, not down in Cornwall or up in Persia, but in their part of the, wherever they are in their part of the country, the more of these we have, the more people will be able to see, oh, that's what beavers do. Bloody hell, that's, that's amazing. Look how, they've, look how this water is so clear down here after this flood event. Or look how, um, you know, look at this water quality information they've given us. So the phosphates and the nitrates have reduced significantly downstream. So, and look at the amazing habitat they made yeah. for these water voles, which we love. So, yeah. so it, is, it is not perfect by any means. But it is all part of rewilding our thinking, as well as rewilding the land and water. Love it. Okay. Um, so before I come off the technical stuff and rewilding, if you had a mixing pot and you had to chuck in some ingredients to get a rewilding project, what would the ingredients be? <laughs> that is... <laughs> You've not been well, asked that before. Well done. Well done. That is the first time I've been asked that. There so that go. is bloody good. <laughs> so uh, off the top of my head... It has to be voluntary. It has to be. It has to come from the owner or the guardian or the custodian of the land and the people and community that they work with. So the first thing is, you got to have passion and commitment and enthusiasm from the owners and users of that land. Yeah. It is not something that we can go around trying to impose on people. And Rewilding Britain has never tried to do that. Although you will see stuff in the press which. Might, might say otherwise but we have always tried to work from bottom up and at the moment that is now working very well because we are being inundated with landowners wanting to talk to us about rewilding wanting advice wanting to be connected up wanting you know their fears to be allayed etc yes. and so number one the the, the owner uh, and, and relevant communities enthusiasm passion commitment the second thing is as i said at the beginning of the interview a large area you know size really matters now i'm three days a week covering the country in this and and so i can only cope with a certain amount of the inquiries so i'm focusing on the really big stuff mm. thousand acres plus and to be honest got got my hands full doing that uh, so that's great but we want to encourage everyone to, to come along with us of course but if if people are not operating at that scale is there a you know i would encourage them to try and join up with other with other organizations other landowners other communities to see if between them they can share the same vision for a bigger area of land and and that's usually what i say to we have lots of approaches from people who've got 50 to 100 150 acres say farm yeah. and i say well you know the most important thing you can do is see see if any of your neighbors are are of the same mind now or might be persuaded create a uh, yeah. Creative yeah 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 connectivity 
with other sites is, is really important. Uh, scale really matters. So size, passion. Size and passion. Uh, to be honest, those are the by far the, the most important. There are other elements that one needs to think about, and that is the economic viability. And you said you wanted to come on to that, so I won't go into too much detail now. But but um, essentially, the the landowner has to have a bus- has to have a plan. You know, it has to have a business plan of how how is this going to work? Can they manage without? You know, maybe they've got other sources of income, which mean they don't need to make money from that land. But in most cases, they will need to try to make it work somehow. So having a business plan uh, and obviously linked into the various funding sources that, that are available is, is, is very important. What's, what are the primary motivations behind the schemes that are coming up and, yeah. you know, to you now? Yeah, the, the primary driver for, all, for virtually all the big private landowner projects, and bear in mind there are some that are not private landowners they're NGOs managing water company land or their MOD yeah. managing land behind fences so they're not all private but for, for the majority are and all of those private landowners are doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do okay. that is the that is the first thing I that, that I should say and stress they're doing it because they believe it's right they're, they want to leave their land in a better condition for future generations however they are also all shrewd business people and they want to make sure that it's going to pay and they want to be assured that they are going to be able to receive whatever payments the government will establish for future land management and obviously the environmental land management scheme elm is going to be critical for that rewarding people for delivering public goods on their land and rewilding delivers public goods in in spades it's absolutely you know it's multi multi-functional in that respect i'm dealing with deferate various levels sort of okay. direct director level and indeed ministers direct and there is ge- a general acceptance for se- from several of them not all of them mm. that rewilding should be a fundamental part of the future elm Fantastic. scheme now I, I we have pushed very hard for that and we've pushed specifically for rewilding to be an option in tier three and possibly tier two of that scheme to be named as an option because that will incentivize i think okay. a lot of new uh, yeah. new effort it will really un- unlock a lot of effort. And is it in the tests and trials? No, it's. It, I'm not aware of any tests and trials which are looking at specifically at rewilding. But what I've just done, literally this week, is sent a letter to the Secretary of State and the Chancellor urging them to bring forward some funding for Tier 3 hmm. of ELM to unlock that kind of activity at the same time as they are trying to keep the Tier 1 element or get uh, keep basic payments tier one going which has a serious there is a serious risk of that being business as usual of course and we all need to watch for that but all these landowners are championing at the bit ready Mm. to go with with these tier two and three large-scale land use change Mm. type activities and we want to see rewilding being a named option so the landowners are doing it because they are wanting to do it because they are aware of elm and future changes in policy which should unlock the opportunity for them to do this and receive some reward for it, some payment for it. But they will also need to attract money from other sources. And those other sources could be some form of diversification on the land. So, you know, producing high quality meat. Yeah, I've got one estate 
produces high quality spirits, juniper for gin and other species for whiskies, for example. We've got several, several of the, the big landowners are looking at educational opportunities and health and well-being opportunities. Those come up quite a lot as being the sorts of extra things that landowners want to do instead of having, say, thousands of sheep across the land. You know, what can they do that contributes more to societal benefits? through health and well-being and education. Well, that really ties into the, the next section, which is why is rewilding important? Why should anyone care? And that's where we're going to stop for now. The conversation about why rewilding is important and the benefits it can bring will form a key part of the next half of the interview. So you've got time to make a cup of tea before starting part two. But before you do, I just wanted to pull out a few things from that, which were of particular interest to me. Now, firstly, rewilding is not about replacing existing species and habitat-focused conservation. It is about linking to and supporting our existing network of protected sites, such as SSSIs and National Nature Reserves. Relevant to this, Ali talks of small landowners coming together to create corridors and link their rewilded land to existing nature reserves or other areas of high value for nature. Ali also talks about the fact that rewilding is not there to replace high-quality farmland and reduce our potential for food security. It is about a choice to transform less agriculturally productive and more marginal land that needs an increasing amount of inputs to deliver an acceptable margin through standard agricultural practices. That's a bit of a mouthful. For example, the simple fact of choosing not to plough or treat this land, this marginal land, is in itself of huge public good value. To explain what I mean, by not ploughing, you keep the carbon in the soil, you don't disturb the vitally important bacterial mycorrhizal and invertebrate life that has been developing in it, you reduce soil loss from runoff, you retain organic matter rather than let it dry out, and you leave it in a better state to grow new crops. Moving on to the second point, which is about scale. Ali said a number of times that size matters, and if we as a country are to take this very seriously, then we need to focus on the larger areas. Also, having a large area, perhaps greater than 1,500 acres, gives the space, diversity of substrate, and also diversity of terrain to allow that patchwork of habitats and multitude of ecological niches to develop that you need for a really diverse ecosystem. However, he also does not say don't rewild your garden, and that having a woodpile or pond or two can be fantastic for biodiversity on a local level. But for making a difference nationally, scale is significant, alongside passion, of course. So finally, since this conversation, Ali's let me know that DEFRA have been persuaded to change their mind positively in respect of rewilding in ELMS, the new Environmental Land Management Scheme. And I'll give you a little bit more detail about this and some other updates at the end of the second interview. So thanks for listening. And now the kettle has boiled, I hope you can settle down and listen to part two. Many thanks and take care. <laughs>